Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. We have long been obsessed with the Chosen One. This ubiquitous archetype has spawned thousands of heroic narratives involving a prophecy and a great evil to be overcome. But in recent years, we're seeing less and less of the standard trope and more subversions which have contributed to the rise of the anti-hero and the villain-hero narratives that populate the grimdark fantasy scene. But it has also led us to consider the moral, political and psychological consequences of being a chosen one, a saviour of humanity. For this episode, we're joined by best-selling author Veronica Roth, whose new book, Chosen Ones, re-examines the archetype in a contemporary setting and asks the question, what can we reasonably expect from our heroes? So thanks so much for joining us tonight, uh, Veronica. Would you like to do a quick introduction um, to our listeners? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm Veronica Roth, and I am the author of some science fiction and fantasy. Probably most notable is Divergent, that series. And then most recent is the book called Chosen Ones, which, as you described, is about, uh, you know, the 10 years later for our heroes who have saved the world. Brilliant. Um, Well, I think it's a good idea to start at the beginning. Um, So let's just talk a bit about why the archetype um, of the Chosen One is so enduring um, and why do we still kind of yearn for these sorts of stories? Okay. Um, For me, I I always love them. I think it's part wanting to be a Chosen One and part really not wanting to be a Chosen One um, kind of occurring at the same time. It would be kind of nice to be special in some regard, I think that that would be exciting. But at the same time, um, it also kind of, I don't know, like releases you from the burden of having to do things about the world around you because someone will charge in and do it for you. So it's a little bit of like a relief and also a yearning to be unique, I think, at the same time. Yep, I can definitely vouch for that. I both wish to be unique, but also would like someone else to do all the hard work. (laughs) But I also think, well, I'm not sure if it really explains why they're so enduring, but so many of our mythologies and religions, they're all sort of built around this same archetype. You go back to ancient myths and and you know, think about um, modern religions that we have. They all have a chosen one or several chosen ones in them, and it seems like it's one of those kind of basic stories that everyone and every culture has them. So it's it's kind of the ultimate the ultimate way that we can connect to stories because if if we all have a kind of chosen one narrative that we know of, it is something that we can all understand and latch onto when we see it in our new fiction. Charlotte, you have a particular distaste for this trope, so (laughs) I'm quite keen to hear why you think it's so popular. Well, I remember when I was a teenager, I loved The Chosen One. I mean, I was a huge fan of Buffy, uh, loved Lord of the Rings, all that kind of thing. 
And I think particularly when you're younger uh, and when you're turning into teenager as well, you're desperate to be special. And I think there's a primal instinct there that we all want to be powerful because let's face it, the chosen one has the most power in the world. We all want control, which is something I don't think a, a lot of kids have. They don't have any responsibility, which is great, but they also don't have a lot of control. So I think from a very young age, we love this idea of a chosen one who is special, who can make changes, who can mold the world in the way that they want. But I think one of the problems I have with the chosen one is you kind of already know that they're going to win. And it kind of takes the tension out of a little bit and makes it very plodding and makes you kind of predictable. And you enjoy it because if it's a good story, like Veronica's is, uh, you get carried along and you enjoy the ride and you enjoy seeing these archetypes and how they're going to deal with the situation. But I kind of feel it, it can be lazy writing because quite often the, you don't necessarily feel that the chosen one has really earned their powers. They just kind of were bestowed upon them, particularly in the ancient Greek myths we were talking about. Just so happened you were born the son or daughter of a god and you had all these powers. And so there's no real kind of earning them, which is what I prefer when I prefer folk tales and fairy tales. We've got ordinary people using wits and cunning and bravery to get special treatment, to get the end results that they want, which I think is something missing a little bit in The Chosen One. Um, so, I mean, that's usually the problem I have with it. But then you do get some more interesting things. Like I really loved how Veronica's book had everybody working to get their powers. And I don't want to give away too many spoilers because hopefully people go away and read it. But I really felt that your protagonists worked really hard to get their powers and they were kind of special to begin with and then they got more special. And I think that's a really good example of chosen ones that you get these days. Whereas I think previously, when I like say when I was growing up, they were all just pretty much bog standard. There you are, you've got your powers, off you go, save the world, rather than thinking about the emotional and physical impact of that. Well, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I feel like I have to <laughs> No, it was very good. It took it from a, a very different point of view. I thought it was a, a nice way to take an old archetype and to redo it. And also, because like I said, one of the problems I have with The Chosen One is you kind of know that they're going to win, whereas I really wasn't sure about your protagonist. And I was like, well, they probably are, but I'm not, <laughs> not 100%. This is a great relief to hear. But I do hear what you're saying in that it's sort of, um, it's like an inevitable ending without the surprise of it and without the feeling that it's been earned. Um, you know, because what is the chosen one for if not to triumph ultimately? So, um, so I want to pick up a bit on what um, a couple of you have touched on already, this um, idea of kind of individualism, this special person, the one who will save us all. I know we're going to be talking a little bit about like the support network um, around the Chosen One, but the Chosen One seems to me to be a very lonely place. And um, we live in a global community. We're constantly kind of talking to each other, reaching out to other people. We feel like lockdown particularly has shown us how um, terrible and damaging, psychologically damaging isolation can be. So why and, and what does it say about us that we're quite happy, we seemingly to be quite happy to consume stories um, that dismiss the greater part of the population in order to put all of our chosen one eggs in a single basket? Like, why do we just want to read a story where one person, it's one person's destiny to save the world? I almost wonder if the chosen one story is sort of a reflection of our loneliness already. So. Um, 
despite how connected we are, there's still a, f- a feeling of isolation. I think it, it's almost become, I don't know, it's become very apparent under lockdown um, how these ways of connecting to each other that we have are not sufficient um, in terms of feeling understood or really known. And so the chosen one figure sort of takes that loneliness and turns it into power, I think. So uh, you feel almost like seen by that figure, but they are also triumphing over it. So it's a little bit cathartic, I think, to read about. Um, or it's like it's like what you uh, wish fulfillment almost. Like I hope that I can kind of triumph over that this lonely feeling in the way that this hero can. You know, that would be ideal. Um, but we also kind of make we we as like a culture, Western culture in general, kind of makes this into like the ideal figure, like this lonely hero figure, um, because like collective effort is not as sexy, I guess, to us. <laughs> I'm not sure why. I feel like we could really dig into that. But do you think it's possibly a cultural thing of monotheistic cultures rather than polytheistic cultures? So, you know, you were saying West. A lot of the Western societies have built up around. Uh, monotheism but potentially something coming out of say you know um a country based with hinduism say they might have more feelings of big groups or you know multiple chosen ones i kind of wonder about that because we were talking about greek myths and they're a polytheistic culture and yet you have all of the great greek heroes but i i wondered if maybe it was feudal and the idea of there's always someone at the top who's more powerful than you. And if the majority of the people living in whichever culture it is around the world are the ones who are subjugated and maybe don't have a very nice life, where it, like Veronica said, it is wish fulfillment and it's cathartic to read about someone who, like your feudal law, might come along and make everything better. And that's kind of where the the idea comes from. And I guess, if, as Megan was saying, if it is in a monotheistic culture as well, you've then got this whole idea that they are imbued by power from the gods, perhaps, or at least you've accepted this idea that there are higher powers who can make big changes. They're also, I think, in those myths, always kind of being jerked around um, by someone more powerful than them. Like, it's not as straightforward as kind of the hero narrative that we might see in a lot of science fiction and fantasy that's more recent um, you know, like Dune or something like that. But it's more like uh, they might be a hero, but they're also being like puppeted by this force that's more powerful than themselves. So I think it's a little uh, kind of deviation from our understanding of the Chosen One, just a little. Yes, I always kind of feel like the story of Hercules was like the first Netflix series always because he's got his own individual episodes where he has, you know, problems to overcome. And then it's here in the background who just has it in for him and keeps sending stuff at him and is really pissed off every time he leaves and kind of has this overarching storyline with a a kind of climax at the end with the, the season finale where he ends up dying. And, you know, it's just I kind of feel like that is, like you were saying, it is very puppeted and you get an overall feeling of a story arc. And I suppose as well with Jason and the Argonauts a bit, you had the gods in the background controlling it. It does make it an element that you perhaps don't necessarily see in modern Chosen Ones. Just thinking about Chosen Ones when they're not actually a one. So if they're not a single Chosen person. So I was thinking of things like Power Rangers and Animorphs. Animorphs! Because, yeah. <laughs> I'm cool. (laughs) But what happens to the trope then? Because 
they are obviously all chosen and they work as a group. And, you know, again, coming back to your book, Veronica, you know, you have multiple chosen ones. I mean, how does that then then change that? Because you don't then have the isolation of that chosen one. You've got them all working together. I do feel like uh, in those stories, there's always one person who kind of rises to the, like they're the leader or something. Like I remember in Animorphs, it was, I think it was Jake who was always kind of like the main man. And then these, this was like his supporting cast. So I kind of wonder if even by trying to mitigate the kind of fiercely individualistic nature of this trope, um, by using a group, you people still end up playing into it as like, well, this one's like more chosen. Um, and I, in Chosen Ones, did that pretty deliberately. Um, and it's hard for me to understand why now that I'm <laughs> it's been a year since I wrote it um but I think it was uh just this feeling that ultimately like someone has to call the shots which I'm just now uh kind of wondering if that's necessarily true but it certainly felt that way while writing it I mean I'm just getting George Orwell flashbacks right now you know it's some are more equal than others <laughs> Well, I was thinking of some examples, which is really showing my age now. Um, when I was a kid, I used to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Captain Planet, and they had groups of sort of chosen ones, but they avoided the need for a leader by having a mentor. And obviously, Captain Planet was a mentor for the three, sorry, four teenage kids. I think and it was, that, wasn't it like five? Because there was Heart, which was the lamest one. We were like, what the fuck? I mean, what they were like, wind and earth, and they could like send tornadoes into the sky. And then there was like, Heart. And you're like, okay. Couldn't um, they talk to I'm... animals? Wasn't that their deal? <laughs> the Heart one? I don't know. Speak with animals. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I remember a monkey. <laughs> Sorry, Charlotte. <laughs> That's okay. It's always happy to be diverted into uh, pastimes and nostalgia. But again, I mean, I so, suppose Captain Planet was kind of the leader, but it was it was just this idea that you can have an equal band where everybody is chosen if you take that decision-making capacity away from them. Because as soon as you, like Veronica says, have someone who makes a decision, they get they rise above the other ones. The only way you can avoid that and to keep all the chosen one equal I think is to put someone on the outside who is perhaps the wise one but balances that out by not having any power themselves hmm. but then you do still have like a person in charge but I see what you mean that it sort of distributes the power more um I don't know mixes it up a little I'm trying to think of more examples of that though than Captain Planet sorry that was just where my brain went to on this <laughs> it's a Thursday night so actually, this is all very um, kind of interesting when you consider like the role of the chosen one today, because maybe, I mean, are we seeing more of a movement towards um, groups of chosen ones or at least more emphasis on the support network of chosen ones? I mean, like not to mention Harry Potter by mentioning Harry Potter, um, like a lot of people have, you know, long commented on the fact that Harry was never going to succeed without that support network in place. Actually, a lot of the people around him did the heavy lifting. Um, and like, is this is are these types of, of chosen ones more prevalent in 21st century fiction and on our TVs and in our films? Are we less um, into the whole idea of this of the lone wolf, like the lone hero 
I think we we maybe like no longer believe that that's a possibility that someone can really mm-hmm. triumph by themselves. Um, and there's also, I think, come into popularity this kind of like gang of misfits idea, um, which I personally love. Uh, but I think that kind of changes it a bit. Um, but ultimately, you know, they still all like Harry. <laughs> God, why do we have to talk about Harry Potter? And yet, here we go. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, it's fine. If you talk about Chosen Ones, I think, especially like historically, you have to acknowledge like a a wide array of problematic works and authors. So I think it's sort of unavoidable. But um, like, ultimately, I think they do have to face it alone. So there's this kind of moment where you realize that one of them truly is special and has to separate themselves from the group. So it, it, uh, it like mitigates it a little, but the friend group thing and shows that people don't arrive on their own, but it still asserts the ultimate chosen one narrative, which is that only one person can accomplish this task uh, at the end of the day. So thinking about the chosen one as sort of an ensemble cl- cast, I've been sitting here trying to think if that ever happens the opposite way round, where you get the bad guy which I know we're going to discuss later on the bad guy is the chosen one on his side. Why do you never see a bad guy or a bad group? As in, you never have an ensemble baddie. There is always one at the top who is leading the fight against either the singular chosen one or the group of chosen ones. And the only example I could come up with was the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, the rebooted one, where you've got the five hidden Cylons who kind of come together. And they're not the best example because they're not really nemesises in a, is that the plural of nemesis? I'm sure someone will be able to correct me if it's not. But I kind of feel like they're, because they're flawed characters and they're sort of on the part of the good guys to begin with, they're not real nemesis characters. And also, even if they are, they eventually fall apart and turn on each other. So that doesn't work very well. Whereas obviously the whole point of Chosen Ones as an ensemble class on the good side, the whole point is they all complement each other and they all come together and they all work together to defeat whatever the bad guy is. So I guess what I'm asking is, can you think of any examples where the Chosen One on the bad side is not a singular person, but is actually a group, either whether they work well together or whether they don't? I can. Skeksis and the Dark Crystal. That that's an interesting point, but because oh, they no, are. come on, I'm I'm so right. <laughs> okay, I know they have emperor and stuff, um, but you know, like, so they yeah, they do have a leader. But actually, like, even though they do, like, they have and they have a hierarchy amongst themselves. Like, there's clearly ones who are like less important, but really, they when they come to like sharing the sharing out of power, it's really all of them. Like they they're kind of all in it for themselves. So I I mean I you know, while one can fall within the ranks, one never is not a Skeksis. Let me throw out another possibility that I'm not convinced is actually true, but we can talk about it, which is the Matrix. Because those machines are... Ooh, but I think we, point. the reason there's usually like a one bad guy figure is that we don't think of our villains as being capable of cooperation, especially sharing power. And they're usually kind of in the pursuit of ultimate power, which then of course excludes them having like a meaningful kind of like social network with equality involved. Um, So they usually just have minions, but I think in the matrix, because they're not human, then we're able to, or whoever, you know, the various creators of the matrix, um, 
were able to kind of reconcile that idea. Like the machines are not really, they're, they're interested in the domination of machines, not of one particular machine. Yeah, I think Star Wars says it quite well, even if, you know, you have issues with the prequels. But when um, Palpatine discusses the Sith, he says there's always two because there's always the master and then the apprentice until the apprentice kills the master for ultimate power. And that, I think, definitely kind of sums up our views of villains where all they want is ultimate power and as soon as they get it you know then they're in the point where they become the whoever's gonna assassinate them or overthrow them you know it's you get to that top and you've got nowhere to go but down why do they keep taking on apprentices if they know that this is inevitable (laughs) that's a question i have about star wars that's true, but then I feel like I can hear my parents say, well, why do we have children? Because ultimately they're just going to take everything that we had. And <laughs> Too right, bitches. <sighs> Suck the life out of us. <laughs> um, I know we were going to talk about this later, but I just think this is a perfect opportunity, since we're talking about villains, um, to talk a bit about um, the idea of, well, the binary nature of good and evil. And and the fact that if an antagonist of a particular story also considers themselves chosen or a chosen one, what questions does that raise for us? I mean, like, we say we're all the protagonists, possibly the heroes of our own stories. And I mean, I don't know about you, but the, the stories that I find extremely compelling are ones where you get to see the villain's point of view and you get to see why they've been cast as the villain you know, in the fact, things like, um, you know, what Wicked did, like it turned the whole idea of like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and stuff all on its head. And it was like, okay, so from this perspective, suddenly the whole story is different. Um, does anyone have any like thoughts about why there seems to be such a thin line between being the chosen one and being the chosen one's nemesis? Well, that's kind of like the ultimate ridiculous hubris right is believing that you are alone you alone are destined for this power and that you unlike other people will use it effectively (laughs) um and that i think that kind of personality is uh i've kind of lends itself to villainy um like who who could believe that about themselves i don't know i do wonder if it's always a parallel to the chosen one. So the chosen one is usually someone who has power and responsibility thrust upon them without looking for it, which is when obviously you get the problematic tropes of do they have agency, is it all just predictable and all this kind of thing. But I think the thing you always tend to find with chosen ones on the other side, on the the dark side for want of a better word, is they tend to seek out that power themselves. So they are kind of chosen, but they also kind of choose themselves because they go forward and accept this and go, no, I want it because I want the power. And I think that makes them a very good foil to the chosen one who has power thrust upon them. Because as I've said previously, you know, when I've done a, a romance writing course, the best romantic entanglements are the ones where the characters completely contrast. You think um, Pride and Prejudice. And I think it's the same for any any story where you've got two people who are absolutely the pinpoint of the story, they've got to contrast each other. So if one of them is reluctant to have power, then the other one has a desire for that power. And I think that's what you tend to get an awful lot. 
Um, so it's a case of being chosen, the chosen one that has been chosen by other people and the chosen one that has kind of chosen themselves. You know, I think a great example of what you're zeroing in on is Gaius Baltar in the Battlestar Galactica reboot because he desperately wants to be chosen and he is just, it happens repeatedly. Like he's chosen in that weird, I haven't watched it in a while, but in that weird like Cylon vision thing, but then he's also sort of like becomes a prophet in the later seasons. And so he's always seeking out these roles where he gets to be, um, special and and unique and powerful. And he often seems to believe that he is at his heart, like a good guy, but then he's also responsible for all this horrible stuff throughout the course of the series. Um, so he sort of like plays both sides of the coin. Well, he does, you see. And I think that's really interesting because I'm not necessarily sure that I would see Gaius Baltar as the bad guy, but I kind of see what you're saying, that he has this power thrust upon him by this prophecy or whatever it is at the beginning, like you say, he's, he's the chosen one. And he doesn't really fight against it. He's just like, oh, fair enough. I'll become president. Oh, fair enough. The are here. I'll just let them kill everybody. So yeah, that's a really interesting foil. I hadn't thought about that. But I think it's a little bit of like for the hero, kind of there, but for the grace of God go I. Um, so a, a little bit of like in another alternate timeline, I could have been this person. Um, and that's when Chosen One stories do that, I find them more interesting i think if there's just like this bad guy who seems to have nothing in common with the hero at all then um it's a little less compelling i think i was trying to think if there are any examples of stories where it's a prophecy about a chosen villain who either does or doesn't accept their sort of chosen nature but i i'm coming up I'm drawing a blank, but I just thought that would be quite interesting where you don't necessarily have a chosen by prophecy or whatever it is that reason function or a way that they choose someone. Um, it, it's not a chosen one for good, but a chosen one for evil. And I, I think that would be quite interesting. It's not exactly the prophecy choosing the bad guy and i hate to bring the name up again but thinking along the lines of harry potter which i have just been rereading with my daughter when you actually come to the prophecy the prophecy specifies one of two people that will arise to kill the dark lord and in a weird way the dark lord kind of makes the prophecy come true by picking the one that he thinks is most likely to kill him because spoilers and apologies if you haven't read harry potter but really <laughs> it's either Harry or another boy. And he chooses Harry's the one he sees as the biggest threat. But I kind of think that classifies in Megan's um, suggestion that it is not a prophecy about Harry Potter himself. It is a prophecy about the Dark Lord and that one will come to defeat him. And oh, therefore, yeah, because this is he will mark him as his equal. Yes. And stuff. Ah, so he's the active is, participant in this prophecy. He is, which I think is, is not quite what Megan is getting at, but I, I do think makes an interesting spin on it all i was just looking up the there's a whole tv tropes page which i love this site especially for talking about chosen ones but it's just called there it. is another <laughs> and this definitely falls into that category there's oh there's another one that could have done it um yep present in a lot of things apparently but yep princess leia there you go <laughs> So just picking up on the term prophecy, do you feel like the whole idea of prophecy 
is problematic because it strips it strips like a person of responsibility and ironically their choice because they do not choose to be the chosen one <laughs> prophecy chooses them to be the chosen one um is that like this is something we see in loads of stories like i mean i love you know megan and i go on about um david eddings which is just a whole yeah extremely problematic but he does exactly the same thing like the prophecy even speaks to Gary and all the way through the story and has this kind of weirdly active role in it but you always feel like he's being pushed on by it and he never I feel like Gary is a perfect example of someone who never had a choice to, to do anything other than accept his destiny and be king and he didn't want to be king but he just does it and he falls into the kind of well-worn groove that the prophecy has like worn out for him um in advance so this seems to be problematic and it seems to be the one thing that really that the one thing that is more powerful than the chosen one the prophecy of the chosen one so this is the part of the trope that I love the most. <laughs> I'm very excited. Um, but what I love about it is that we think of tension in stories often as coming from surprise, um, you know, like a twist. And I certainly love a twist. But I think prophecy forces the tension in the story to come from dread. Um, and there's some surprise in the kind of like working out of the prophecy. Like, how does this come to pass? And does it mean the thing that we think it means. Um, and that can be kind of twisty and surprising in and of itself. But I love, love dread. Um, <laughs> because often I think the prophecy of the chosen one leads to their demise, or it seems that it will. And so you're kind of like marching toward your own death. And um, the ways in which a hero tries to get out of that or doesn't try to get out of it or thinks that they're getting out of it, but really playing into it, all of those questions I find really fascinating. Um, and the, my favorite chosen one stories are kind of the ones where they're figuring out their place in the destiny. So, you know, uh, Dune is a great example of this, like Frank Herbert, um, Paul Atreides throughout the book, he kind of knows that like these prophecies were made up in order to control people on this planet. And he decides to play into it in certain ways. And then he tries to play against it in other ways, but is basically incapable of escaping this fate and his kind of like frantic and desperate grab at, um, you know, at figuring out how to make this all work because he can kind of see the future is what's so enduring about that story for me personally. Well, as someone who enjoyed Chosen One narratives as a teenager, like a lot of teenage fiction, I now kind of feel that I've outgrown it. And I do find the prophecy a little bit dull, but I am enjoying the wave of fiction like Veronica's, where it kind of deals with other parts of it. So in Veronica's story, again, without too many spoilers, <laughs> you've got some chosen ones, Matt Sloan and Esther, who have already dealt with the prophecy and have dealt with the dark one and are now kind of moving on to the next stage. And it's not all over for them. They still have massive adventures and there's lots of danger and tragedy and all that kind of stuff. But by kind of having already completed one prophecy it's like well <laughs> that's kind of done and out of the way and and they can they, the whole of the world is now open to them and all the different challenges they might have and it adds an extra element of yeah okay we've had one prophecy but now we're kind of freewheeling and we don't have a prophecy to guide us we don't necessarily know that we're going to win and i think that's really good but i also was thinking about which we haven't mentioned yet buffy um 
And I love the fact that she's kind of like her, the chosen one is her job. It's not like the one and only showdown and then it's done and over and you kind of move on with your life. She is the chosen one every day. She has a new battle to fight every day. And yeah, there's the prophecy that she becomes the chosen one, but you also then get into the idea of there are other chosen ones. And the prophecy is kind of generic and it relates to chosen ones in general. And if she dies, well, there's another chosen one coming along on the next bus kind of thing. And I think that's a really interesting way that Joss Whedon has kind of taken that trope and gone, okay, the prophecy is got to be a part of it, but I don't want it to limit things. I don't want it to make it feel that this is all preordained and that there is no threat or danger here. And I think obviously having subsequent chosen ones is one way of dealing with it. Being past the prophecy and into the realm of the unknown is another way. I think one of the facets of these stories that interested me and that I was curious about exploring in chosen ones with them being past the prophecy is the degree of resentment with which they regard the whole thing. So um, for me, the significant moment in Chosen Ones that kind of is is a little bit of like the crux of the story for me as the writer is when um, it's early on and it's when Sloane and one of the other Chosen Ones, Albie, are talking about whether what makes them chosen, like a lot of people met the criteria for this prophecy, but what made them chosen is that their parents were willing to hand them over to the government for whatever, And so what makes them chosen is essentially that their parents are terrible. And um, I think this is a, this is like a factor of a lot of chosen one stories for me because they're usually young um, when they're set apart for this destiny. And what's so disturbing about that is the idea that adults would throw a young person, a child in the path of evil, just because somebody says that that's what's bound to happen. And that is like, some dark and unsettling stuff about a lot of our kind of like children's literature. It's funny how you mentioned the way that people are bitter about what happens to them, because for me, the prophecies just seem like the ultimate weight of expectation. It's like, you know, having those kinds of parents who are just like, you must be like, valedictorian you must be absolute best of the best but like you know turned up to the max and i don't think enough stories really deal with the psychological trauma that you get from having the weight of that because okay yeah on the one hand you might say well the prophecy says that i will succeed so i will succeed but on the other hand what if you end up letting everyone down and somehow you manage to screw up the prophecy and then the world ends or I don't know, anything like that. You you can, you know, that kind of imposter syndrome thing comes into mind. And for me, that's quite interesting with prophecies and, and I think would be, you know, nice to see more of that explored. This is the part of Veronica's book that I really like the most. The idea of what happens to the chosen ones after the end um and like it's just something we don't seem to see discussed very much and yet we consume as many chosen one stories as we always have um but like nobody talks about this kind of afterlife this like bizarre half-life that they live after the glory has gone and the spotlight has been turned away so like why is that um, like, why do we 
feel so um so kind of turned off and and uninvested in characters after they've completed their destiny I feel like I was never turned off. I was always curious and I just never uh, got anything kind of explored because these stories, they do go into, you know, what happens after. Like, I know Dune has like eight books in it. And um, even with Harry Potter, we had kind of like continuations and certainly with Ender's Game or um, a a lot of works kind of go into like what happens later, but they don't explore the emotional and psychological aftermath, which I think is usually because that's just not the question that the story is trying to answer. And I don't think every story needs to answer every question, but it's certainly a point of fascination because what these people go through in order to save the world uh, would give them all PTSD. I mean, really (laughs) Um, just considering kind of the bearing that kind of weight as a young person, that would be necessarily traumatic and would kind of influence the, your your ability to lead a healthy and and balanced life after that point, um, and I guess that's just a sadder story than we're interested in in general. The general we. When we were discussing notes for this episode, Lucy gave the example of the Lord of the Rings, where there were two possible fates for post destiny chosen ones. You've got Aragorn, who lives up to everybody's expectations, king and gets the girl and gets to live in a beautiful palace and the trees all flower and blah, blah, blah. While Frodo is left to unsuccessfully pick up the pieces of his life and ultimately can't do that. And I think, obviously, books, again, going back to Veronica's book, there are books out there that take a different view of that and you know try to imagine what it's like to go back to being being normal or I can't do air quotes in a podcast but normal according to whatever world the chosen one is in but I do think that generally this is right in that the chosen one's afterlife so to speak tends to fall into either great glorious good oneness they get everything they want or they're completely absolutely screwed over by this and they're just they're just seen as a failure but in a weird way I've noticed that our attitude to the latter category seems to be like, well, that's kind of accepted and it's their way of giving their life for the rest of humanity. So they don't actually die, which of course is another fate for the chosen one as well, but they kind of lose their life. But you almost feel like that's the role that they should take because that's what we've seen so often in fiction. And I kind of feel a bit sorry for the chosen ones sometimes that we think, well, this is obviously if they can't get the riches and the girl, then they're just doomed to have this other life. And I think it's quite dismissive to kind of think that chosen ones would do that rather than maybe just try and get back a normal life. I don't even know if it is possible. I know that Veronica explores it in her book, but I think that's another avenue that you know more people need to look at. Well, one of the most recent examples of this, I don't know that we can argue that Katniss in The Hunger Games is exactly a chosen one, but she certainly has some of those qualities. And um because I wrote a dystopian trilogy that has some commonality with the Hunger Games, I hear about it a lot. Um, and uh, people talk to me as if the end of that series is is happy. And I have never disagreed more with, with random people in book signing lines than over the end of Mockingjay because, you know, she does technically, like, get the guy, I guess, but then basically is, like, just trying to deal with her mental health while her children play on the ashes of the dead, the end. And that's the end of that series. So it's a little bit more of a realistic take on on the costs of, you know, that she had to pay in order to fulfill her role. 
Well, I found the bit where she watches her children playing a little bit problematic because at the beginning she talks about not wanting to have children and not wanting to bring them into the world. And then by the end of it, she has children and she's happy to have brought them into the world and she's with Peter. Sorry, Is she happy though? Sorry, I don't want to mess up the editing of this podcast by talking over you but um <laughs> sorry but I don't I feel like the way it's presented to us is that one day Peter was like so you want to have kids and she was like fine and then they have them I, I never got the impression that she was like yeah motherhood and it's sad <laughs> yeah no I have to agree with you Veronica I thought the same well, that's what I was going to say, that it's almost like the having of children is the getting of the crown for Aragorn. It is the ultimate thing, and she's got it, and we're supposed to assume that she's happy. But I kind of feel like you guys, that she that's not it, and that it's its a symbol, but it doesn't quite speak to me because this is something she has never wanted, and now suddenly she's got it, and it doesn't feel like the Katniss that I know. And I do kind of wonder why she got kids when she was so against it. And is it really that perfect world, like you say, when they're playing on the ashes of all the people they destroyed? So I think that's a really kind of dubious ending. And it's a bit like um, Inception. You could kind of take it whichever way you want. Yes, this is my the hot take that I will live and die on is that the end of that series is depressing um, on purpose. <laughs> this is my argument. Suzanne Collins, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to to just talk about the the whole idea of chosen one narratives being wish fulfillment and you know wanting to be special because for me the aftermath part of the chosen ones that's interesting is it kind of harks back to you know the the typical stories about you know the it girl in high school or you know they they were the prom queen and whatever, but then that was the peak of their life and they become sad and depressed and because nothing ever reached the heights that they did in, in high school. And it feels a little bit like Chosen One stories are set up to be that way because once you have saved the world from ultimate evil or whatever it is, you know, what next? How can you possibly peak after that? I mean, it feels a bit like that's a surefire way to become a drug addict because you got to get a high somehow and what high are you going to get? No, obviously I am with you on this <laughs> observation because I wrote a whole book about it. Um, like, what do you do after you know with certainty that you have peaked? Because if you've saved the world, there's literally nothing you can do to top that. Um, so you have to find a way to move through the world anyway. But I think that might be the answer to the question of why we don't see what happens after. Because what happens after is a profound bummer Um, because I mean, I think a lot of, like you've pointed out, a lot of people see this in kind of like a normal life, quote unquote, normal life, um, which is that if you've worked your whole life for a particular goal, so maybe that's like getting married, maybe it's going to college, maybe it's having a kid. I don't know if you've worked your whole life for that goal and then you achieve it, then I think it's pretty natural to feel completely weightless after that point. Like what the heck am I doing now? I have to find a new, goal a new mission um but if but if it's saving the world like what mission can possibly be worthwhile so i do want to touch on um something we've been kind of skirting around um but you know we've been dropping words like problematic and you know eek and chosen ones being associated with some dubious 
narratives, um, which we all, you know, stories which we all were, you know, reading when we were growing up and maybe didn't um, kind of see what the problems were, which are now very kind of glaringly obvious. But particularly at the moment, since there's just so much, rightfully, so much discussion surrounding racism and racial bias, um, which manifests in ways many people might not fully realise, like, um, you know, the reinforcement of certain storytelling tropes. And in this context, um, the chosen one, we really have seen an awful lot of white and overwhelmingly male chosen ones throughout history. Um, and I don't I think that can't help but feed into the white saviour narrative. So even though it's a loaded question, I still feel it's very necessary to ask about the chosen one archetype being used to endorse white cis and heteronormative attitudes and narratives. Is this the case more often than not? I mean, I, I feel like I want to say like yes, because this has been my experience with the chosen one books that I've read, but that's a very uncomfortable answer. Um, and I think, you know, and, and it's right to make us feel uncomfortable. I definitely think that you make a good point. Uh, I think, I don't think it really serves anyone to pretend that this trope doesn't have a whole lot of like problematic stuff attached to it. Um, and certainly growing up for me, like I, uh, I wrote a big list of all the chosen one stories I was exposed to growing up. Um, when I started talking about chosen ones more regularly, you know, after it had come out and the, there's only one lady on this list and it's Buffy. Um, and there are only white people. <laughs> so, Oh, except for on the show community, which is of course a comedic take on the chosen one trope where Troy Barnes is the, the air conditioner repairman that will repair man. Um, but that's it. And um, I don't know if it's inherent to the trope or if it's just because of who has decided to engage with it or whose work has been lifted up in the kind of like sci-fi fantasy canon in particular. Um, but when I try to think of more modern examples from um, authors who are not white, I come up with um, a few, and they're a little more like you have to argue that they meet this trope. Like, I don't know if you guys have read Binti by Nettie Okorafor. She's sort of um, special and set apart for her unique uh, uh, kind of mathematic abilities. And she leaves her home culture and goes to Umza University, which is like the big intergalactic university. And then um, her journey kind of goes from there. But I don't even know if she she doesn't play into a lot of the, like she's not destined. I don't, I haven't finished the series yet, but I don't think she has like a destiny. So a lot of it is kind of stripped away even in that example. And that's like one of the only ones I can think of. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of Octavia Butler's parables duology where she's kind of a chosen one in a similar way to Katniss in that she kind of chooses herself. She decides basically to create her own kind of religion or cult or whatever you want to call it. And she becomes the, this savior self, uh, self-described savior and revolutionary. But what's really interesting about that duology is that you get the first book is all about her deciding that she is this person who is going to lead um, the oppressed to safety and peace. 
But then in the second book, that's entirely ripped apart and she is shown to be selfish and just going after power and, and being hungry with it. And that's a, it's really interesting because it is that kind of thing where we were talking about before, that dual nature, you know, what or binary nature of good and evil. But she is an interesting look at that that chosen one in in that sense. And you know, Octavia Butler was um an African American and the the main character is. So I think she kind of does count as a chosen one, but you're right. It's very it's very hard to think of chosen ones that I have read or seen in films and TV that aren't cis white and usually male. I have been thinking a lot lately um, about this because I wonder if, um, you know, this is kind of a broad statement, but I wonder if this, this ideal of having someone in charge who will just save the day is something that we can only believe in if we have like if we do occupy a position of power in society, like this trust of authority um, that exists in kind of the chosen one story that someone's got it figured out and someone will take care of it. It'll be fine. Um, I just kind of wonder if that's maybe just not a mindset that you can have if you are not in a privileged position. That is an interesting point, but then I would, okay, sorry, Lucy, here comes the star Trek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you have the the kind of the opposite bit where until people are able to see themselves in those positions of power, you then won't be able to imagine yourself there. Um, and so in particular, I'm thinking of the story about Whoopi Goldberg when she was a child and watching Star Trek and seeing Uhura on the the command, you know, in part of the top tier of, of the... Um, Enterprise crew and saying, look, there's a woman on TV and she is important. She is a named character. She is, you know, I can do this. I'm being represented. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg type thing. And I, mm. I agree that, yeah, it's it's hard to for a lot of people to potentially buy into that idea if they feel like, well, that wouldn't happen. But at the same time, until we start showing that it can happen and that it is something that we can relate to, it also will continue to be really hard to imagine, if that makes sense. <laughs> I think one, I think this is a good point because one of the places I can see chosen one stories um, from not, not white, not cis, not straight authors happening is in young adult literature. Um, so it seems to be kind of like in that genre growing um, as people realize that, um, you know, maybe they they wanted to see themselves reflected in this exact kind of story growing up, and now they're old enough to write it, um, which I think is pretty great. So do you feel like writers have um, a duty to be aware of how this archetype could be used um, politically? Because I feel like we... You know, if if we're, I mean, I'm a, I'm obviously a writer too, and it's it's one of those things where you kind of like you're sitting down and you're creating your character, or the characters are walking into your head, and 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 we've spoken about this in, in the kind of context of creating side characters and and assigning certain professions to 
certain genders by just not even thinking about it and then taking a step back and going, whoa, hang on a second, why have I made that blacksmith a man just because I feel like historically it's a male profession? This sort of thing. Like, do particularly now, do you feel like writers, um, we, we really need to kind of take stock of where we are and maybe think that we need to be writing, but if, if we're going to put, you know, a particular character, um, you know, who you know, might be very much like us, like in the main role. What's this going to look like as a political statement? And how is it going to be seen by readers? Well, I think any writer who is writing into the canon, which we all are, um, inevitably, is has kind of an obligation to be aware of that there is a conversation that is happening and it's happening through books and has been happening for a long time, both books that we have lifted up and kind of memorialized and books that we kind of allowed to escape our notice that this conversation is ongoing. And whenever you write something new, you are speaking into that conversation. So um, for me, I always feel a duty to understand what has come before me and what, um, what having a voice in, in that conversation means and, um, and all of that, I think. So there's that duty. But beyond that, I mean, you just have to, I don't know, writing exposes you to yourself. Uh, like you said, it exposes even your deeply held, but unconsciously held biases. And I think it's incumbent on every writer to be aware of that also. Um, but I don't think there's like a clear answer here in terms of like, what can, uh, what can this author write and not this author or um, you have to, when you're writing outside your experience, you have to approach it with profound trepidation um, and thoughtfulness. So um, there's that duty too. Yeah, no, I think it's a really difficult question. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the, it's, we, we have um, similar questions um, surrounding cultural appropriation, as you just touched on, you know, it's like, and I think Charlotte raised this in our, our most recent episode that went out today. Um, you know, we were talking about write what you know, but if all of us wrote what we knew, um, I think we'd really have very much like a kind of very singular narrative and a very, and it would be very boring because we would never grow as writers and very few of us would grow as readers and we wouldn't be exposed to stories that we, that are totally outside our experience. So it is, it is a really difficult one. It's like, I think all you can really say as a writer, as a reader, as a human being is simply to be respectful, um, you know, of, of other people's stories and be interested and be open-minded to, to learning and accepting that there are experiences, life experiences that may be different from your own. I was thinking about when you were saying about write what you know, which I did mention last week in reference to Jane Austen, I'm sure. And I think another part of that could be, as we were saying, you don't want any cultural appropriation, but at the same time, I think you can work elements into it if you set out to learn about it and to read what other people are saying, both fiction and nonfiction, about the issues surrounding this kind of thing. And you won't obviously have the in-depth knowledge that you will have if you're someone who's experienced it. But I think if you think about sensitivity readings, if you find the best books that are out there, and there's so many good books by people of colour being recommended all over the place at the moment. So I think if you can say, yes, I shouldn't be writing about things I don't know, but at the same time, I should be trying to educate myself further and trying to work what I learn into my into my own work based on what real people have told me and what experiences I've seen and heard, then I think that can be a good thing going forward as well. I also think if 
if a writer is under the impression that they can do it perfectly or that they, this is something that they can win, you know, like uh, I hear that from white writers specifically sometimes like, I just feel like I can't win no matter what I do. And it's like, well, (laughs) this isn't, this isn't a game. Like there's no, there's no winning and losing. Um, What you're going to do is you're going to have some measure of success in what you try to execute with your writing as you would with any other element of your writing. And you have to accept that as an inevitability and um, also accept criticism for it because I don't know. Um, people aren't a monolith and no people are a monolith and they will not receive your writing in the same way. And um, I don't know. I just think that that humility is important to keep in mind when writers are, as we all do, writing outside their experience. Because like you say, if you write within your own experience, then all, all I would write is like boring Midwestern girls. Um, in predominantly white towns, <laughs> having like very basic high school experiences. Um, and I just don't think that's going to happen, especially if you're writing science fiction and fantasy. So I think humility becomes a huge factor here. So Veronica, thank you so much for joining us and talking about The Chosen One today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And this was awesome. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.